0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is June the 21st, um, 2023, a Wednesday. I've been away for a few days, as regular loyal viewers of the show know. I've actually spent um, the last week uh, in the Baltic states of uh, Latvia and Lithuania in beautiful cities of Vilnius and Riga, where I was making speeches. One of the things that struck me about being in Riga and Vilnius in particular is that the idea that the Second World War hasn't really ended. These are cities still dominated by the trauma, the experience the tragedy and I guess the victory in some ways of the Second World War. We've done lots of shows on World War Two. One with Richard Overy, the very really distinguished British historian who asked whether Second World War had ended. Uh, of course, uh, Second World War is dominated by darkness. We did a show recently with my old friend Ian Buruma on collaboration in World War Two. Many collaborators. Um... Some about shows about people who didn't participate in uh, Second World War, pacifists. So uh, One guest we had, Daniel Axe, suggested that these are the people who we should most celebrate. That's quite controversial. Uh, of course, it's unavoidable to talk about the experience of African-American soldiers from the American point of view, the hypocrisy of that in the Second World War. And the Second World War is very much alive. I wrote a piece for Lit Hub last year about the life and afterlife of World War II in the context of the current tragedy in Ukraine. One novelist we uh, had on the show last year, Christian Beck, suggests that World War Two remains seductive for novelists because it enables them to write about the purity of good and evil. But I wonder whether there's another way of thinking of it. Rather than... Uh, Good and Evil. Maybe World War II allows novelists to write about ugliness and beauty. My guest today on the show has a new book out, Second World War novel, The Glass Chateau, Stephen Keenan. He's written a number of books before, uh, particularly about France and the experience of the Second World War. People will be familiar with his book, Universe of Two. Uh, and The Baker's Secret. But Stephen focuses in this new book, which is out this week, The Glass Chateau, uh, on art and beauty and redemption and, of course, ugliness. And I'm thrilled the book is just out. He's joining us from the East Village in New York City. He normally lives in Vermont. He's on book tour. Uh, Stephen, congratulations on the book. Is there something in that? Um, Of course, the Second World War does allow novelists like yourself to write about the purity of good and evil but also about beauty and ugliness
1: well you know i think since september 11th we've seen the flourishing of two kinds of uh, of a literature i guess one is the literature of hollywood which has been all about superheroes and this these divine virtually immortal highly moral beings who are going to rescue us from ourselves And then you see the kind of literature that's come in book form and many novels that are really struggling with a much more kind of morally complex um, and more humane uh, set of circumstances in which the belief is instead, here's how human beings, uh, ordinary folk are going to deal with this. I love writing about World War II in that time, not because I'm writing about presidents or generals or necessarily great heroes, but really ordinary folk who are caught up in something that is much, much, much bigger than them and darker than they could imagine. So what I've done with the Glass Chateau, after writing three books about, three novels about uh, the Pacific theater, the Asian theater, and and then the American home front, um, was to write a recovery book. You know, I think the world could use a healing book right now. Um, And so I was searching for times in history when you saw a nation that was very damaged and flummoxed, and in um, need of repair, and uh, but also was simultaneously polarized uh, economically, financially, spiritually, uh, culturally, politically, and how they managed to do it. And as I was doing that research, I kept coming back to the images that I had seen of the cathedrals of France. They were all blown to bits, and many of them. In fact, a million and a half buildings in France were destroyed. Yeah, thinking about
0: Metz cathedral. cathedral or. Uh... Or rebuild yes. cathedral, which of course ties together the narrative in your book.
1: Yes, exactly. And so I was looking for, you know, the praise of the rebuilders of those cathedrals, and very often no individuals were named. It was it was much more of a collective effort, and so that led me to um, to think of this idea of a chateau where um, men who are all wounded in various uh, psychological and emotional ways by the war are working together to rebuild the stained glass windows of one particular cathedral in a city that I concocted that is not unlike the city of Reims in in eastern France. And one of the things that made that particularly appealing to me was the the actual history of Marc Chagall, who was um, from the area that is now Belarus, and who was Moshe Siegel for the first third of his career. And when he westernized himself, one of the things he did was concealed to some extent the fact that he was Jewish, so that the French Catholics would teach him uh, how to make stained glass windows, and he had commissions to do so. And Reims is the first place that he had stained glass windows installed um, in the cathedral there. Um, And so that to me became like an interesting question, Um, you know, was it possible for a polarized nation to heal? If you look at the history of the United States and Reconstruction, for example, I would argue that we have not completed that healing process that rebuilding process and it's very difficult to find examples through history so when i went to this cathedral so, coming back to healing yes,
0: in france um stephen give us some background not everyone is as well versed in uh 20th century french history what did france have to heal uh we we i, I mentioned uh, ian baroma's book on collaborators of course there were many collaborators in france france was occupied by the Nazis or split between uh, one kind of uh, occupation and another. What, what was the, the core healing experience in France, in, in, in your view, which maybe distinguishes it from other countries in Europe that had experienced Second World War?
1: Well, you know, the country was was deeply divided and there were people who felt there should be a great resistance in a battle. And there were people who believed in the appeasement of, of Germany and and its military. And um, so the first thing it had was a political reconstruction that that took quite some time. The second thing was a kind of an infrastructure uh, reconstruction. As I said, a million and a half buildings, roads, bridges, gas lines, trail lines, churches, hospitals, schools, all blown to bits. And um, and then there was sort of the people's literal starvation. You know, we think of the uh, Marshall Plan as this sort of coming to the rescue, America coming to the rescue of Europe. Well, first of all, it was actually I would argue the money was intended really to stop the spread of communism and to save these very, very hungry nations from from falling into that influence. And the second thing is a lot of the money really didn't start flowing until 1949. So you had four and a half years of these nations struggling on their own and regardless of the extent of damage. So what I tried to do was take a little subset, a bunch of men who have scars from the war, a few women around them also wounded by the war and and how they begin to rebuild their lives and some of it is each of these things I mentioned. They're rebuilding a cathedral. They're trying to rebuild their own sanity and sense of themselves. They're trying to deal with grief for, over what they lost and maybe some guilt over things that they needed to do in the war, what the war required of them. And um, all these different levels of healing that take generations. And Paris came back booming, you know, people staying up all night drinking champagne and listening to jazz. But the rest of the country was hungry for a long time. And so, again, I don't want to write about the people in power. I'm much more interested in ordinary folk and how they sought to recover. And, and so um, I create this community in one character in particular, Asher, who was a maker of fine boots. He was a cobbler in a town that I create called Bonheur, which is somewhat modeled after Enfleur. And, um, and he wanders the country until he comes to the chateau. So is Asher,
0: um, in some ways, a, a fictional recreation of Chagall? How does Chagall fit in? Uh,
1: I guess a couple of ways. Um, he is not a recreation of Chagall. He does not tell Chagall's story because Chagall really stayed very Parisian for a long time and then later was in Nice. Um, and I wanted someone who was more of an archetype, um, I guess, and someone who was recovering. Uh, from so Asher
0: the- was part of the resistance.
1: Yes, he was. That's right. He was an assassin for the resistance. And these were uh, what I would call retail assassinations. It was not a very uh, dainty bullet from a distance. This was arms around um, a German officer's throat. Um, it was uh, poisoning someone in his presence or knifing them while they're looking. Uh, Stephen,
0: how, one of the things I, I've never really understood, I'm not an expert on the French experience in the Second World War, is how extensive was the resistance? How unusual I mean, would Asher have
1: been? Uh, I think the most amazing thing about Asher, the unusual thing about Asher would have been that he survived. As a Jewish man, it was four years underground. Um,
0: so but Asher he, is a Jew.
1: He is a Jew. And, um, and he's very much at a loss to maintain his faith because of what he saw and did. Uh, he, it's hard for him to reconcile that with the existence of a deity because it was so awful. Um, in terms of what the 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 ordinary resistance experience is, you'd need to speak with a, a true historian as opposed to a novelist.
0: But your it. your sense is um, because we we did a show actually on Holland under the the Second World War, mm-hmm. and a historian who argued that the the Dutch have conveniently forgotten the fact that most of them turned a blind eye at best to the elimination of Dutch Jewry. In collective terms, can one make some generalizations about the French experience? Were most French people one way or the other implicitly or otherwise collaborated?
1: Uh, No, there were huge divisions. And um, there was the Vichy government, which was all about appeasement of the Nazis and delivered some 70,000 people, including children, uh, to the Germans and they were taken to camps and mostly exterminated, uh, all murdered. And, um, there was everything from that to, uh, to people who thought the answer was communism, that, that it was, is the, so, the, the socialists uh, had come in and driven the, the Germans out. And this is who their new allegiance should be with to people who thought that America was providing them with heating oil and coal and helping them to grow food. So they'd have something to eat. There were all these different factions. And this is why I think it's analogous to now. You know, one of the reasons I I want to write about history is to see if there are lessons from that time that we can apply to. Well, well, I I don't see that.
0: I don't see the analogies between uh, France in the Second World War and today. In what sense? Well, let's start with a political landscape that has everything
1: from socialists to neo Nazis and a former president who doesn't cede power but stages divisive rallies. Against the existing president who was duly elected, I think there are a lot of parallels actually, and that that um, it's more about the human dimension of how our individuals forget the people in power. If if you, we have, I would argue, a damaged culture right now and very polarized, and the polarization is is perhaps.
0: The, yeah, the, are you the, suggesting 20, that the America of the 2020s, the divisions, the the destruction, the need for reconstruction, are similar to the the France coming out of the Second World War?
1: Not in scale, of course. Um, this is much more an internal conflict as opposed to something that came from the outside. Um, but I think that you could look at race relations in America now and say, deep division. I think you see the rise of anti-Semitism, deep division. I happen to have had a son who was a student at the University of Virginia when that, uh, that episode happened in Charlottesville. It's a very interesting thing as a parent to be, you know, how you say to your son when he's going to college, you know, uh, be gen- respectful of the ladies and get consent and don't drink too much beer and go to your classes. And here's what you do when neo-Nazi protesters come to town. I think that we underestimate the degree to which people actually, I think, if you look at the, the polling number, most Americans actually agree on things like uh, what ought to be done about guns, what ought to be done about climate change. Huge, huge majorities. But the polls are what that the extremes are what are driving the discourse right now. I think if you look at the treatment of trans people or book banning, these are all examples of that. Anytime you see book banning, you know, people are afraid of ideas. That's a dangerous time for a nation. So it's not like we had an invading army that was superior to our army. And we are recovering from that. That part is not analogous. But the extent to which an ordinary person can be caught up in uh, in these kind of uh, divisive things that are happening around the country. I mean, ask any librarian in Arkansas. I think that it's analogous. And so uh, what I also believe is, well, my question that I was trying to ask with this novel is, is it in fact possible for a divided nation to to rebuild and to mend? And what I pose as, as an example of a success in this was not something that I found intentionally, it was by accident, when I was in the cathedral in Reims that has Chagall's windows. When I first arrived, I didn't rush right up to those windows. I was uh, walking through the place and on one side there was a sign and it was saying that this was the place, not only was this a place where France had done its coronations for the 900 or so years that it had kings, but also that this was the first meeting for rapprochement between German officials and government uh, members and, and French people in these same positions. And that at this first meeting, um, where all the windows had been, there were, there were boards there was just wood over the openings, um, and the German delegation said, "You know, we invite France to go find the best stained glass window artists in this country and to rebuild those." I wanted,
0: Stephen, just
1: one more second, and then they said, it "said to rebuild those windows, and Germany will pay for it." And there I am standing in the cathedral, seeing proof that that rebuilding is possible. It's not a fairy tale; it's a thing that happened. And the windows there are the first ones by Marc Chagall, and they transformed the art form. So it actually occurred, the history occurred there, and I said, now I have a novel.
0: I wonder, though, with France, you talk about reconstruction and people coming back together. France was always, always has been, still is, a profoundly divided country, for better or worse. I mean, this was the France of uh, the Dreyfus case, the France of, uh, on the, always on the brink, even before the German invasion, brink of sp- some sort of civil war between left and right, between militarists and, and the left. Um, what's wrong with a country divided? Isn't that natural? Some of it certainly is. Democracy
1: is a noisy and unruly system of government, and you can have things really tidy if you just have a dictator or a military government. <laughs> and so some of that, that conflict actually is a sign of a healthy discourse. Um you know, I think that, that uh, there's no country that I can think of, a democratic country that has a
0: pristine history. And that is maybe yeah, not... But Denmark, country. Stephen, you forgot about Denmark.
1: You've, you know it better than I, I
0: confess. I don't actually know anything about Denmark. It's more of a, a metaphor for people in America yes. who, who, who want to be like somewhere else. But anyway, go on.
1: Yes, we... Yes, um, uh, but I, I mean, I think that, the, uh, that some healthy conflict is... Uh, A wonderful thing and how a democracy works things out and makes it take longer. You know, if you want to create a new hydroelectric dam in China, the government orders it and a million people move. That's not how it works in a democracy. And so there'll be a lot of argument about that dam and is it needed and where will these people go and who will pay for it? All these things. I would prefer to be in that than in a dictatorship personally. Um, But we go astray, I think, from what I'm trying to say in this novel, which is that it is possible for a people to rebuild. And that this is the story of some people who do so through an art form, and primarily through the process of working on something very difficult and challenging and complex together. And they each have their own wounds and scars from the war, and yet those things become less important as they begin to work on something in concert.
0: So you, you as you say, you you're inspired by the story of the the the, the glass at Reim and 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 Chagall. Um, are you suggesting then in, in in the role of art, and, and I, in the beginning of the, the show, I talked about possibly rather than thinking of World War II in terms of good and evil, it could be thought of in terms of ugliness and beauty. Is there a, a redemptive quality to art in your novel? Absolutely. Both the creation of the art
1: and the result of that effort. And um, the book spends time on the process, in part because I think it's fascinating, the making of glass and, uh, you know, the high temperature, the strength of it, the fragility of it, and then the making of stained glass windows and the design uh, and the idea that that it will be a sacred use of the art as well. Um, and uh, and I think that that is so. Art can also be very disruptive, of course, and and I think it's a thing we welcome if it's a constructive destructiveness if such a thing exists. Um, but in this novel it is it is about the process of these people working together and making something that is beautiful and discovering that they can. And there's a moment when um, some people are in argument and there's a woman who says, you know, before you kill each other over this argument, would you just pause? and look what, at what you have built together. And then just imagine what you are capable of building together. Now, I don't see that discourse in our politics, but uh, but I think that it's actually an essential part of, of national reconciliation and, and recovery, that uh, that people consider what they have accomplished and what they are capable of accomplishing. I think there we have, for example, all of this division about uh, the, the COVID vaccines, when, maybe if we had a different point of view, we would say that it was one of the most astonishing accomplishments of science in our lifetimes. And there were lots of imperfections because we did it so fast, but nonetheless, you could see that being considered a spectacular accomplishment. And, and it's not viewed that way. I think broadly as, and as broadly as maybe it ought to be. So I think about what we, what we have built as a nation and then what we are capable of building. And, um, I see a lot of uh, I I don't know, I think I want to tell a story that says this is a this is a thing, a more constructive thing to pay attention
0: to. The astonishing thing about the Chagall story, as you say, he was born into a Jewish family near Vitebsk in in Belarus. More than 50 percent of the people living there were Jewish. Uh, The great Australian art critic uh, Robert Hughes described Chagall as the quintessential Jewish artist of the 20th century, Um, a remarkable artist, everyone's familiar with his work, Uh, and yet he contributed to this cathedral. How important is that, the idea of of a great Jewish artist helping to rebuild a cathedral in a Europe in which the church, for better or worse, was in some ways complicit in the destruction of European Jewry? In a way, it is absolutely
1: breathtaking and astonishing. That The community he came from was about 220,000 people, virtually all Jewish. And at the end of the war, the number of survivors was 118. That's how many people died, including everyone that he knew that didn't flee. And everyone, all of his relatives and everything, 118 people out of 220,000. The fact that he would go from that to building a window where if you stand in the center of the cathedral and they have the gold cross on the altar... You can see that cross reflected in the window that's about 100 feet behind it. And that he was embracing that, that symbolism um, because he was after making the beautiful art. And so to him, it wasn't necessarily the religious conflict um, at all. Not that he wrote about or commented on in his writings. There are not, to my regret, I have not been able to find great biographies, of Chagall, so you know, if anyone in your listenership would please go and write one, that would be very helpful. Um, but I think that he was not—he uh, was not particularly hung up on the Christian imagery. Um, he was more interested in making beautiful things, and um, and uh, not without their difficulties and their demons and their needs for healing. One of the things that was really fun is after I'd done the uh, research and seen a lot of Chagall windows in person, and all the ones I could afford to fly to. Um, uh, I managed to get inside the United Nations to see the window that he did for Dag Hammarskjöld Plaza, which is now a much more secure place. And here we place. have
0: an image of, in the United Nations. The peaceful. oh, there it is.
1: So the reason, that, one of the reasons I love this is because if you look in these individual panes, um, there. This he made this when he was ninety four, I believe, or ninety six, um, and it. The images is, it is full of babies. It is full of lovers. It is so optimistic and sweet. And um, and it's very moving when you see this this guy who is really struggling to make his art just after the war. And, you know, a lot of his contemporaries are going to cubism. He, they're really looking at changes in form inve- investigations in form while he's doing investigations and in content. So he's drawing paintings of the shtetl that he comes from with cows flying over the roof. Um, this kind of surrealism that brings to the, almost a folk art kind of life to it and makes it very winsome. And then, sort to of see his last works and and see the optimism that he ends up having about the human race, it's a very uplifting thing to experience. Really, of all the books I've written, um, this is the seventh, and this is the one the research was most moving and profound for me.
0: Yeah, it's, um, yeah, as I said, Hughes describes him as the quintessential <laughs> Jewish artist. I'm not entirely sure what a Jewish artist is, but as you know, um, in Vitesk, where he was from, practically everyone died. Of the fifty right. or sixty thousand people living there, some escaped to, uh, back into Russia, but 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 there was a, a handful of survivors—a hundred people. Does being a, a Jewish artist in this sense, do you think for you? You you mentioned the shtetl. Is it keeping that alive, even if the the Nazis eliminated European Jewry? In physical terms, the idea in in artistic terms couldn't be eliminated. If you just leave one Mark Chagall, then the Nazis essentially failed in their uh, evil intentions.
1: I can't I can't say how much I love what you just said. That the, that that is exactly right. You can try to eliminate a, a people, and the art. Um, will will survive, will endure, and represent those people. And one example, if I could, um, when Chagall was working in, in Moscow in the early 1920s, um, uh, he, was, he was making his living painting and designing sets for the opera. And in one case, he did a backdrop that showed a man um, on the top of a building playing the violin. Now, we all know the Fiddler on the Roof, Right, we all know that. If I were a rich man, etc. Okay, but that that actually had its origin in an image of Chagall's. Is sort of like how someone can say "to be or not to be," having never read Hamlet, because it's just become part of how we see the world. And what I can tell you is, um, the inspiration for that was so strong that my novel is full of moments. There is a moment in which a man is playing the fiddle on a roof. And the reason he is, is that one side of the building is people on one side of the politics in that town. And the other side of the building is on the other side of the politics. And it's how he's playing to both audiences without getting beat up by the other with his hat for coins in the middle. And um, right, this is sort of metaphorically how the people are divided and how a street musician found a way to reckon with it. And I have that kind of fun with Chagall's imagery um, all through the book, where there are images that he made that are... um, that really lend themselves to this story of rebuilding and recovery that begins in the lives of the individual artists and then becomes a cathedral. And then by the end of the novel becomes an ambition to be much, something much, much larger.
0: And the funny thing about windows, Stephen, is they're supposed to be things we look through, but of course for you, they're anything but
1: there is a, uh, You know, I mean, the idea of the stained glass window originally, I believe, was uh, for an illiterate continent, mostly, was here are the, the parables of Scripture. Here are the lives of the saints. And and then Chagall took it to the next level. And so there are things that defy gravity in his windows, because what is gravity to an angel? What is gravity to a holy spirit and a soul? Um, and and he was reaching for a, a kind of a greater like not such a literal translation of scripture, but more of an uplift of the human spirit um, and the making of the window themselves before this. There's really only one scene in which people are looking at the windows that they have built. And actually, the reason that they're that I think they're transfixed in that moment is because they've, they've had weeks of rain and they get, the, they get the unveiling of the window, and the sun comes out, and the colorful light is shining on their faces. And even though they're all damaged, damaged people, and with all of their their, their, their things, all the chaos, all the ghosts in there, inside them, the light on their faces makes them beautiful. And um, so it ends up being almost like a um, non-denominational baptism of light. That's the idea anyway.
0: And of course, cathedrals are edifices not just of individual genius, but of collaborative genius. Whole books have been written about the role of different communities over time in building um, cathedrals. I mean, you focus, of course, on Chagall, but as you note and as you imply, Chagall couldn't have these windows on his own.
1: No, no, and the the, the cathedral in Rennes, you know, I think they started building that in the year 880 or something like that. Like,
0: yeah, somewhere. and then they didn't finish it for about two or three hundred years.
1: Yes, exactly. And then, and it's you know, while I was there, there was still work being done on things that have been damaged during the war. All around the entrance, there are. Um, There are statues of the prophets, and some of them, you know, are still being held up by supportive materials because they were knocked off the building in the war. Some of them, their faces are knocked off and they have not been recarved. And some of that is, I think, also the French predilection for leaving some of the damage from World War II out there in broad daylight. Uh, They're not alone in this. Obviously, Germany has preserved the worst of its history during that time as a powerful reminder. But But it's very interesting that they haven't prettied it all up. Um, And that you would get a people in a remote part of the country that would spend 300 years building a religious place. Um, Just says that I I could have told the story even hundreds of years before if I knew anything about what life was like in the year 880. Um, And also, in those times, I would say that it was uh, kind of a purely religious and maybe economic um, question as opposed to one of recovery and perhaps redemption.
0: Stephen, let's end uh, on the United States. Uh, As you've noted a couple of times in the book, in a a way this is a book about healing and perhaps might help America heal itself. Um, I wonder whether there's an element also in the book about an implicit reminder to Americans of the value of tradition. Um, The cathedrals, of course, are ancient collaborative, collective um, achievements built over generations. Americans tend to not only build stuff, but perhaps specialise in knocking things down and undermining tradition. Is there something in the book, in the Glass Chateau, which reminds America that if they are to heal, to come back together, they need to have collaborative architectural or artistic projects? maybe not literally cathedrals, but something equivalent to bring people together.
1: You know, Andrew, I spent 20 years working in newspapers before I was writing novels. And I spent a lot of time, most of that time, um, as an editorial writer. And so it was a critical um, relationship with what was going on in government and in culture and so on. And and I enjoyed that role a lot. It was a, a continuing education though it did make me cynical, particularly about political figures. And um, and I'm trying to come from a very different direction this time, which is to say, uh, look at what we have accomplished as a nation, never perfectly, never seamlessly, you know, with slavery right from our inception and so on. And yet we have continued to march forward. And um, the phrase that, uh, you know, is, is a perfect misuse of the words, perhaps it is is the concept of a more perfect union, it's actually a syllogism that doesn't work. If you're perfect, you can't be more perfect. But this idea of an of an ongoing enterprise that we are all involved in. And, um, you know, I live in Vermont, not far from the Canadian border. And sometimes political things happen and people say, you know, if this gets any worse, 40 miles north, I'm going to Canada. And I think exactly no, exactly the opposite. This is an enterprise, like it or not, we are all very involved in. And so, you know, it's why I believe if a woman le- loses reproductive rights, I'm a 63 I'm year old male and it still touches me. We are all in this absolutely together. And so um, I think that that idea is a traditional idea and is a founding idea. It's a fundamental idea of what America is. And I think we've lost sight of it because we've been too busy arguing. And for good reason. We were terrified by covid. And, you know, a million and a half people died. That's a terrifying, it's a legitimately terrifying thing. And we had very mixed politics about it. And that's just one example. I think 9-11 and its repercussions, I think, division about the Vietnam War. And, and yet, during the division of Vietnam War, we put a man on the moon. And I think, like, we need to remember that we accomplished those things, not in any Pollyannish Way or not, or rose-colored glasses, or denial of the difficulties we had, and the civil rights debate going on at the same time as the moon program, but simply to say that we are capable of this, that we have done this, in fact, that we did come up with a vaccine that protected people from COVID, and here we are. You know, I just had a wonderful book event last night with a full standing-room-only crowd in New York City, and nobody was wearing a mask. Just terrific. And so I think, like, if we If we do not lose sight of what we have accomplished together, as the character of the novel says, imagine what we could accomplish together. It's a traditional idea. It's a dangerously optimistic one. And, um, And it's what the story of the history of these windows that were made at that time tells irrefutably.